Welcome to the Reinventing Education Podcast. This is a podcast for anyone interested in reinventing what education is. Today we are discussing what kindergarten and student government, as well as the idea of agency, looks like in a traditional school governed by the value of security. I'm Rob McLeod, and as always, joined by one of my favorite human beings to bounce ideas off of, Brendan O'Leary. How are you, Brendan? I'm good, Rob. And how are you today? Somewhere between good and also juggling the management of stress, uncertainty, and uh, but some like silver lining optimism at the same time. Most of this being in reference to uh, this current coronavirus, COVID-19 business that's going on around the world. And perhaps you came to this podcast to escape the world of that. But uh, I think we want to take just a moment, maybe at the start here, to kind of look at the impacts of it uh, within schools and what you and I have noticed. But before we get into that, how are you, what's up with you? How are you keeping? So when I say good, I mean good in the sense of both existential and real, real life uh, <laughs> troubles, but none, none that are insurmountable. Yeah, we are now, we've just done two weeks of what we were calling a virtual school. We have one more week left because uh, I am in Japan and the Japanese government have decided that essentially schools are closed for three weeks and we've done two of those now and so I did describe this in the last episode we were just going into it I think we just done we just done a few days um we kind of got over some of the teething problems a little bit and we more or less managed to find ways to do a lot of the things that we wanted to do so we're able to give work to kids and we're able to give feedback on that we've got people meeting in small groups doing video chats we've got a couple of afternoons that we've decided to finish a lot earlier and give kids more self-directed tasks so they can decide what they want to do artwork sports go out and play and and with this idea of wellness or balancing that screen time. So one of the things we instituted this week uh, after getting feedback from teachers, students and parents was that we should be explicit with the amount of screen time that a kid is having. So if we're going to give them four tasks in a day and each of those tasks is 30 minutes to 40 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes in front of a screen, let's acknowledge that that, you know, we're looking at two, three, four hours of screen time. Let's try and balance that up by giving tasks that are away from the screen, spreading that out through the day and and I guess the other thing where I talked about last time was about this clarity idea. So being incredibly clear, a lot of our parents, English is not their first language. So let's see if we can get what we want the kids to do in just a couple of sentences. Now on the, if we look above and beyond school, Japan's actually seems to be doing, it looks like a decent job of trying to contain the spread of the coronavirus. And so uh, Japan's got a pretty good healthcare system. The hope is that the healthcare system can kind of spread this out. And I'm saying that in relation to school because the idea is still to go back after this spring break which will be in three weeks time the numbers uh, are predicted still to be increasing at that time but it's one of those situations where we tried this we've had a we've had five weeks away from school we're gonna have to try and get back to some kind of normalcy it's also the beginning of the japanese school year we're on uh, on the international in the international school we're on kind of a western timetable from september japanese schools start from the end of uh, start from the beginning of April, and so a lot of uh, and so there's a real big um, there's a real big significance in trying to go back at the end of this spring break. Yeah, so things are up in the air. Thankfully, as I said last time, we had a lot of our digital platforms up and running. Kids were already using Raz Kids. They were using Khan Academy. That we had this seesaw digital portfolio, and using Google Docs and all those kind of things. So. 
the transition to that was not massively painful, but I think, again, I said last time, this highlighted, it put a magnifying glass on any students that really did need support, whether that's in their own self-management of turning up on time and doing things, or whether it's in the academics, it really highlighted that. And so teachers and parents have really been working really well in collaboration to try and support students that needed a little bit more help with their own self-management and obviously with any kind of academic support. So it's not a perfect situation, far from it, but we've learned a lot and made a lot of progress in trying to keep school fulfilling its aims as an educational establishment. And one of the biggest kind of one of the biggest things that we have lost from everybody being in their own homes is that social aspect of school. And I said this to you a couple of times in our conversations. This is really highlighting the social function of school that we know it, of course we do, but to we will appreciate it so much more when we get back and we're actually together for those six, seven hours instead of sat in atomized groups or in our own at our own station and so i think going back to school probably with a greater appreciation of that time we spend in the same place playing games together hanging out the conversations because uh, you definitely can run a school without people being in the building but it would look very different from one that has everybody there really went on a little went on a little bit there rob yes yes yeah well no there's a lot Tell me about your side of things. Yeah. Sure. So I think the two things that come into my mind are just this idea of VUCA, which we've often spoken about, and uh, the adaptability of schools. So I guess first, like, you know, this virus situation, I think this is a good example of a VUCA context. So VUCA being volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And, you know, it's kind of like the rules of the game are changing nearly daily or at least weekly. And, you know, this is a situation where you need to be able to be adaptive and rely on any kind of strategy to be the most adaptive. And through conversation with you, through conversation with other friends who are facing similar things of school buildings being closed, but attempts being made to continue lessons in some way or another, for me, it's really reinforced our narrative about the kind of three values in education. And I know we'll get to our, in a nutshell, segment in a moment, but it's been interesting just to see how the kind of traditional teachers and traditional schools kind of rely on this idea of like, well, we're going to make a big work package for you. Do what I'm asking you to do. And, you know, in two, three weeks, whatever, like bring it back to me and we're done or some variation of that. And then the sort of mainstream or kind of opportunity informed schools are basically saying, well, here's the curriculum objectives and we're going to keep getting through this thing. And we're going to keep testing you. You're just not going to be in the building. And, you know, I'll find an effective and efficient way to do this for you. But, um, and, and I've seen many attempts to find creative ways to be able to still provide student feedback that wouldn't be involved in a normal day-to-day context. And it seems like the, the kind of progressive or the inclusion-minded schools, they're still trying to keep that collaboration going through online, whether it's video chats, through forums or whatever, it still seems like that that permeation of the social world and that uh, group, not necessarily consensus, but just that togetherness is still a priority. So it's interesting when you see schools go into a period of stress, you could say, in this current context where the building is kind of being taken out of the equation and you're losing that physical environment, how does the school adapt and respond? 
And it kind of seems like our three different values double down, but they just try to find an, a way to continue doing what they won't see as being important in education, but just in response to not having a physical environment to do that in necessarily. So yeah, that's kind of the first thought is just noticing how we deal with that volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous situation. And then I just wanted to share a personal anecdote, which was, uh, so in Belgium, and I, for the sake of historical posterity, you and I are recording this March 15th, so with the intention that this will come out in about three weeks' time. And who knows, maybe we're in a very different context by that point, and we'll look at this as almost like a time capsule moment to go back and listen to. But this past Thursday night, actually at midnight, early Friday morning, the Belgian government had made the decision to close. Well, I should be careful how I word this. They decided to cancel all lessons in schools for the next three weeks. Now, there's a little ambiguity there. What does canceling lessons mean? Does that mean canceling the lessons in the physical building, but being able to provide something online? Or does that mean all lessons for the next three weeks, essentially there's no school whatsoever? Um, and it's actually been up to the schools to interpret those government directives. So some schools are just opting for the next three weeks, nothing, no homeworks going home, no checkups. Essentially, you've got three weeks of break leading up to your two weeks of Easter break. Um, whereas other schools like mine have interpreted that as no physical classes in the building. There's no mandatory attendance. Um, however, of course, we're going to continue to provide you with um, work to support your learning during this time leading up to our two weeks of Easter break. Um, however, Friday morning, when the students showed up, uh, I had one of the high school classes, and of course there was tons of buzz going around about like, oh, the schools are closing and blah, blah. And I, was, and I just kind of asked the kids a few times, like, well, do you guys know what that means yet? And I was like, well, no, but the schools are closed and blah, blah, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I took it, I think that's probably a very inclusion-minded or progressive approach to it. But I just said, hey, before we get into what we'll talk about today, you guys have legitimate excitement and concerns and all these sorts of things. And I just want to throw two kind of tools to think about this through. And one, I said, like, when things are, I didn't use the term VUCA, but I, I forget, how did I word it? I said, when you don't know what is going to happen yet, I think was the way I worded it, to kind of put it into a kid-friendly term. When you don't know what is going to happen yet, here are the two things that are the best strategies. One, just stick with the facts you know. And two, you can imagine but then return to the current set of facts. And then we went through with the students some of their concerns or excitements, and we talked about them. I said, okay, so which one of these two categories does this fit in? Are you talking about something we know for sure right now, or are you imagining something, but that's an imagination and we're not sure about it yet? And we kept coming back to that word yet and saying, you know, this is kind of volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. We don't know this part yet. Um, and, you know, I was basically saying, because, like, you know, all of the schools in Belgium woke up this morning, heard the news from midnight last night, and are now making a plan this morning for moving forward next week. So I said, you know, there's going to be a meeting later today. Your parents are going to be informed, all this sort of stuff. Like, this, this is coming, but we don't know the specifics yet. And the students said that that was really helpful. And then we also just talked briefly about kind of the three physical responses to stress of fight, flight, or freeze and uh, there's a really helpful video on YouTube that I'd found that kind of broke it down for them. And I just said, like, and again, you know, which one of these do you guys find yourselves coming from the most in right now in terms of this kind of 
unknown situation. And we were actually able to have like a really high level mature conversation um, about their kind of approaches to stressful situations. And the feedback I got, three of them came up to me and talked afterwards and just said, oh, I'm really glad you shared that with us because like I can see how I'm doing this and I can see a few of the adults around me are doing this. And that was a really helpful way to, to talk about this. So a bit again, I took a bit of a rant there, but it seemed like an opportunity, a real life opportunity to discuss some of the the um, individual coping mechanisms to stress and I can see the inclusion part of me coming out where I was like no the most important thing for me in this moment is just the sensitivity of knowing that this room full of youth are going through something that doesn't mirror anything like any of their previous normal days of school and I even asked a few of the kids like does this day seem weird to you like what's this like and one of the students had said, this just seems like a dream. Like, this doesn't seem like I'm actually at our school right now. This feels like I'm in a dream. And like half the kids were like, yeah, exactly. This doesn't seem like this is happening. I, I, I don't get it. This is so weird. So yeah, a little bit of a ramble there, but um, just some of the kind of experiences that are coming out of this. Yeah, and interesting that you and I have spoken about the quadrants before and the idea of... Uh... I'm quite systems-minded, and I described our system, and you're quite feelings and responses uh, minded, and you described the thoughts and feelings, but obviously through our conversations, we know that within my school, we also had those discussions on the first morning when we found out on the the Thursday evening, so we had the Friday to prepare, and, you know, we said, we, we sent teachers into classes and said you know obviously you're going to do this anyway but you know take some time with your with your students and and talk through those concerns and stresses and um yeah and then i know from your side that you've had to go through the intricacies of trying to come up with a system that will allow your school to continue so we've all got to deal with all of those kind of quadrants those ideas and this uh, the the other two quadrants we've not spoken about the actions and uh and kind of resources and especially that that culture idea and i guess that's where you said before that each of these kind of value systems and that's very much in those kind of cultures each of these value systems whether it's security minded whether it's opportunity minded whether it is inclusion minded kind of tries to double down on what they're doing and continue doing that good work in school just without that physical space and uh, yeah maybe this is going to be a time capsule we come back the next time we record in two weeks three weeks or whatever and things have changed massively let's hope it's for the better fingers crossed mm-hmm. but uh, who knows it's a it's a vuca world out there as you like to say Rob McLeod. <laughs> shall we move on yeah reverse sponsorships for this week <laughs> Yeah, well, mine isn't very much in keeping with uh, what we just spoke about. I wanted to shout out the Seesaw digital platform. So this is a platform that's used across uh, thousands of schools now. And essentially, it has two main functions. One actually has three main functions. The students can upload their own work and share it, uh, get feedback on it in the comments and tag it and put it in certain folders to return to they can also uh, it's also a communication tool that messages between parents and teachers it's it's very convenient in that side and then teachers can actually set specific tasks for students to do which is one of the ways we're using it now that we hadn't explored too much before it has other functions too that actually you can assign skills and you can assess skill levels in their kind of in the back end where only 
generally teachers can see that stuff unless they explicitly decide to share areas of it so it's a, it's a very um it's a very useful tool and it's actually pretty intuitive you you can put videos photos uh, all kinds of links to google docs and other things up there so yeah that's my shout out we're using it uh, all day every day trying to get that balance of course but it's really really useful as a tool yeah so the seesaws i probably should look into <laughs> who makes it <laughs> the seesaw company go to seesaw on on the google and they'll tell you they'll they'll send you in the right direction my shout out this week um is actually a bit of a throwback and i started revisiting this book well, i shouldn't even say i've revisited it i pulled it off the shelf thinking okay and then in the coming weeks i might have a little extra free time on my hands to delve into some topics i've been putting off and i wanted to come back to this book igniting brilliance um integral education for the 21st century edited by willow d um essentially it is a collection i guess you'd say of essays um case studies of people who've applied integral to education. And although I think you and I are doing great cutting edge work, it's a little bit humbling to actually open up this book that was published in 2011 and to skim through the titles of some of the various papers that are in this. I'll just read off the first handful of them because I thought, well, this just kind of sounds like our weekly or bi-weekly episodes. But um, what can integral do for education from progressive pedagogy to integral pedagogy I mean, that's essentially our whole shtick on this thing. Uh, on the value and importance of personal development, uh, an overview of embodying with awareness, uh, botany in all dimensions, the flowering of integral science, um, integral, or sorry, homeschooling from an integral point of view, uh, multiple things. So yeah, basically like a, a handful of things. And I read this book quite a few years back. I think actually the first year I moved to Germany and I have some proof of that because my bookmark at the time was my pass to go up a gondola in uh, Norway, which would have been the fall of when I moved to Germany. So I've pulled this one back off the shelf and looking to dig back into it with fresh eyes because you never step into the same stream twice. I'm curious to see what I'll get out of it this time around. So igniting brilliance, integral education for the 21st century. And it's really interesting that you pulled that off the shelf and read it, and then it's like, oh, this is all the stuff we're talking about. Obviously, that fed into the the discussions that we initially had two, three years ago, but it's cool to go back to something and be like, ah, yeah, this is actually connecting in a way that it wouldn't have done, I guess, in 2012, 13. So we're, all of these things that Stephen McIntosh from a couple of episodes back and all of the things that are in the air right now kind of give me a little more confidence that maybe we're heading in the right direction with this idea of the fourth value, as you might like to call it. If we were trying to describe what happened in our show, maybe in a nutshell, maybe this would be the time to do it. How are you feeling? I just noticed in the background here my Segway detector has beep, uh, beep, beep. gone off the charts. Yeah. Shall we shift into In a Nutshell? It's my turn this time it around, It is. Right? We tried to... I tried to do it last time, and I think I was fairly comprehensive, but I was not succinct. How are you feeling about hitting both of those criteria? I'm going to attempt today. I'm going to attempt to do both of those at the same time. All right. I'll time you. You go. You tell the people. You go spread the good word. Here on Reinventing Education, we're looking at applying some of the principles from integral theory to education in order to reinvent or in some ways to reimagine what education is. To do this, we're applying a bit of an integral framework to the way that we see school and education. So to begin with, what are we talking about when we talk about education? 
education has three core aims that we all seem to agree on. And one is preparing you for the next stage of school or for the workforce. So getting you ready for school or job preparation. The second is the cultivation of citizenship. So helping you to take on and embody the values of the communities and cultures you find yourself in. And the third aim of school is to help the development of the individual. Now, how do you do that? Well, when you ask a variety of people, you'll see that we have some wildly different ideas about how to achieve those three aims of education. Now, we are attributing this to different value systems being at play, and we're being influenced both by the work of spiral dynamics and as well the integral theory stages of development. And we're essentially arguing that right now, you can find three different types of school around you. You can find a traditional school, which is largely organized around the principle of security. You can find a mainstream school, which is organized by the principle of opportunity. And you can find progressive schools, which organize around the value of inclusion. So each of these three different value systems has very different ideas about how to achieve the three aims of school and education. Now, where do we see that? Well, we've identified eight aspects of a school. These eight aspects line up with the quadrants from the integral theory model. And essentially, you can look at the exteriors of things. You can look at the interiors of things. You can look at individual pieces, or you can look at how they fit into greater wholes or things that are more than the sum of their parts. So these kind of create four boxes, the insides of individuals, the insides of the collective, the exteriors of individual things, and the exteriors of collectives. If we move through those four different boxes, we are identifying two things in each of those, which we find as critical components to consider when looking at what education is now, what value is informing it, and how you may change that, either to shift back to a previous value, or in our case, we're pushing to do the value you're in right now the best or push forward into the next value. These eight aspects, starting with the exteriors of individual things, are the resources and the activities. So we can look at the actual things that are used, the resources, and we can look at the activities. We can look at what is being done in education. If we look at the exterior of the collectives, we can look at both the systems and the environments. So the environments being the physical spaces that are being used and associated with this education, and the systems being how everything is being organized. We can also look at the interiors of the collectives. So here, the two aspects we identify are communities and cultures. So communities, who are the various overlapping social circles involved in this context? And their culture is what are the norms that are shared or not shared between those various groups. And finally, we can look at the interior of the individuals. And here we can look at the beliefs and the reactions of each individual person associated with an educational context, be that students, teachers, administrators, parents, um, community members, whatnot. We believe that in order to reinvent what education is, we believe that all eight aspects we've just identified need to be identified and addressed in order to determine what value is currently informing an educational context in order to be able to see where we are at if we want to change and move towards something else. And to put our cards on the table, we are actually coming from a fourth value, which we are calling the integration value. And we've spoken to a handful of the 
cutting-edge people who are on the avant-garde of education. You can find some of those discussions in our earlier episodes, some interviews that we've done with them. And basically, we're arguing that an integral or an integration approach to school goes back and looks at these three previous values of security, opportunity, and inclusion, and attempts to take the best of each and discard the unnecessary from each, or the babies in the bathwaters, if you will. And we, between Brennan and I, here on this podcast, we really believe that this integration approach is the best approach, given the world's current living conditions, in order to prepare kids for school and work in what we would call a VUCA world, a world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, to be part of a citizenry that is able to function and adapt to those living conditions, and as well just to help the individual in terms of their own self-development. So in a nutshell, that's what we're about here on Reinventing Education. And we put this at the start of each episode. First of all, if you're new, I think it's helpful to have heard this before we launch into our dissection and analysis of schools. Um, but if you are returning as well, I think every time Brennan and I say this, we hope that we are getting clear on it, but we're also hoping that you're kind of marinating in this message and each time being able to make new connections that you weren't before. And if not, perhaps you've already developed the habit of just skipping this part of the show. So that's reinventing education in a nutshell. Good job, Mac. I like the way you came right out of the integral closet at the start. <laughs> because Why, thank you. You know, it is heavily heavily based on a lot of the theories from a lot of the ideas from integral theory. Uh, it's not something I have a huge background in myself, but I spent a lot of time talking to you about the those analytical tools and definitely the stages of development or the spiral dynamics and the these idea of the quadrants, which is those eight aspects we just spoke about. Definitely heavily um, informed by the integral theory. So... Moving on towards that, towards what we've been doing for quite a long time now, which is to which is analyzing the strengths and weaknesses, or babies and bathwaters, as we call them, of traditional schools. That is the blue color in spiral dynamics, and that is the the security-minded school. So what we're saying is this school would double down on the ideas that would give them the most security. As they get, as they pursue their ideas in education, and so we've looked at many aspects so far. But today we're going to circle in on the idea of kindergarten, and what kindergarten might look like in a traditional school. And if you haven't heard one of our episodes from, I think seven episodes back now, Bren and I we took a thought experiment virtual tour into a school that was entirely informed by the security value. And in our modern context, you are not going to walk into a school that is 100% purely informed by one of these three or even four values that we laid out in a nutshell there. Um, you're going to see some kind of mix, but our attempt here is to distill down some of the markers that you would see that would give you a hint when you walk into a school if perhaps it's being informed by the security value 
which we're assigning to kind of a traditional school or kind of, you know, your stereotypical old school um, imagery that comes to mind when you think of old schools. So in our thought experiment, we walk into the school and we see that they have a kindergarten and it's largely play-based. There's actually a lot of free time. There's a lot of hands-on things happening with the kids and the teachers are actually quite hands-off. There's I guess just this sense that, you know, this is the time for the kids to kind of have this freedom. This is their time to develop some of those social skills on their own. We will step in if we need to, if security is an issue here. But by and large, as teachers, we're standing back and just providing this physical space with these physical materials as a context. Because once kindergarten's over, and you get into grade one or whatever the first year of like real school is, things are going to change dramatically. Things are, that's when it really starts. And for now, we're still providing you with this very relatively unstructured time. That being said, there still can be times where teachers will structure activities, especially those arranged around social rules. So there may be a lot of practice in how we walk between rooms, how we sit, how we are listening, how we wash our hands, these sorts of things, how we put materials away, how they come back out. So the instruction you see is actually largely just procedural based, interspliced with large amounts of free time. So Brennan, if we look at what are some of the positive components to this or the positive sides of this, what do you see? Well, every one of the value systems has its own concept of childhood and concept of how children should develop from very early childhood and up into adulthood and what the traditional value sees is that as you said this is a time before responsibility and it is a time where you can learn to socialize and generally it's felt that you know and and it's somewhat of a consensus that it is natural and good for children to be given this time to socialize together and especially in that traditional value but also in the inclusion value that we we see come what we call a progressive school would also see that this time spent together is very valuable and it actually you know i've done a little bit of digging and it seems to be backed up by some research the idea that you know emphasizing more hands-on learning and giving students time to help one another out in kindergarten actually improves not only their social skills but what the mainstream school might also uh, want to see, which is, you know, the it, it actually improves their self-control, their regulation of their attention, and it actually may lead to greater academic scores. This seems to be good all around for everybody. If you give those kids under the age of seven, you give them a lot of time to hang out together, to play together, and you're just there doing kind of like some of the procedural stuff and just getting in there and having conversations about how they work together. This seems to be good for everyone. So I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add there in terms of the babies, Rob, before you move on to the bathwater. But uh, here, let me know what what's good and bad about this. Well, I think you've hit on the the babies, the good stuff here when dealing with youth, to shift over into the bathwater of the things we might want to set aside here. The first thing that just strikes me is I've found this genuinely puzzling that in the traditional model of school, one that's so centered around 
security, one that's so centered around like teacher authority, it kind of just seems like there's kindergarten where like none of those norms apply. There's this idea of like, no, there is this free time and then it's going to kick in in grade one, as I alluded to. And one of the issues here is like a lack of actual discipline in this context means that many of these kids are actually just hard to deal with at times because there might not be the reinforcement um, of certain norms. And that all of a sudden there's just this hard transition into grade one where you've kind of been living life one way and then the next year all of a sudden there are many new expectations, social norms, all these kinds of things thrown onto you that you haven't really necessarily been practicing. I guess there's just this kind of blanket idea that, ah, you're ready for it now. You're old enough. Done with the kiddie stuff. Let's get on to, to real school now. And there is actually some evidence that structure and some academics uh, can have positive long-term effects. So typically, in this kind of free, hands-off, play-based way, there's not necessarily a lot of push in terms of academics, be that phonics, numeracy, um, whatnot. And I guess for a lot of the mainstream schools, schools that are looking at opportunity as their governing value, they might just see this as a missed opportunity. You know, we could have started these kids on their trajectory towards meeting our expectations much earlier. And, you know, other kids who are in a different kindergarten who did do that, maybe they've got a, a head start or an unfair advantage on our kids where we just kind of gave them this unstructured time. Now, you've mentioned some research here. I'll just say the quote, and if you want to add to it, please go through it. Um, Kindergarten classes are getting much more academic. New research says the kids are all right. So I think sometimes there's this concern that if we begin throwing some of the academics at children earlier on, um, this is having a detrimental effect. But according to this one research journal, they're saying basically there are trade-offs between academic achievement and social-emotional skills, but you can do both, essentially. And you don't have to exclude one for the sake of the other. Do you want to add anything to that, Brennan? No, I I was a little surprised when I read this article and I kind of dug into, because I expected it, I expected everything to say, let's keep, let's keep academics out of kindergarten, it's going to have detrimental effects later. This essentially seems to suggest that there is some trade-off and actually introducing a little bit of reading and writing and math and more academic stuff does not stop kids from developing socially, but actually can improve their academics as they get further at the school. So this was surprising for me, and I think this from a mainstream school would be very encouraging for them to hear, and then you would have to get into the nitty-gritty of how can you do that well. Because in the traditional school, in the kindergarten, yeah, maybe just leaving the kids from eight till four with free play, with just these kind of procedural instructions, maybe there's other stuff you can add in there. And I'm not, of course, there are great kindergarten teachers, and it's not just hands-off play. They're having, they're having really wonderful discussions with kids, and they're talking about stuff, but it isn't structured in any way. And so I was surprised to see, but yeah, the mainstream school might see this as a missed opportunity. So it's interesting that the, the research backs that up. And if we would take this back to our traditional school in the kindergarten, I can imagine that security value would start, their shoulders might start to rise with the very idea of introducing academics into kindergarten. Um, because it is against essentially that conception of childhood. But I think 
This will also help into that harsh transition from the end of kindergarten to grade one, which is a real, real big challenge for a lot of children. It's in some ways as big as that transition into high school for kids or junior high school. It's one of the three or four big steps that kids make. And so anything we can do, I think, is really, uh, really positive. And looking at the sensitivity side, if we've been talking about how this might look from the opportunity value or in a mainstream school, if we look into a progressive school, one that's being influenced by inclusion and some sensitivity, um, there's a chance that we would just see that there's maybe a missed opportunity here for the guidance of the teacher to actually help the kids inquire into what they are interested even more. So to have that teacher function as kind of a coach to actually facilitate the child being able to dig into what matters to them and what is meaningful. And you made note here of Montessori versus kindergarten. What do you mean by that, Brennan? So again, this link that I found does a like-for-like comparison of how a traditional kindergarten with free play and the teacher's not really taking anything more than a procedural role versus a Montessori school, a Montessori kindergarten that would essentially lead children with through an inquiry cycle. So if a student did start to show a lot of interest in a particular plant or a particular game, they would kind of start to ask them questions and guide them that might start to give the students a chance to ask more or do more. It isn't the same way as, say, an inquiry cycle in our current progressive IB schools where the students are expected to go through the whole cycle. Montessori is very much more open. But it is structured. The the teacher is there to ask particular types of questions to suggest a particular direction or a way for students to inquire. And that would not happen in a traditional kindergarten. I may actually be something that traditional schools might see as impinging the students kind of freedom and their their time to just be with other students oh my segue meter is beeping off the charts again brennan because that brings us to our next topic of agency and student government um and talking about the idea of like having some sort of student council and what voice do the do the kids have in the school would you like to talk about that yes so very much this is something as we just mentioned in a more progressive school one that's based on the idea of inclusion this is a no-brainer we're trying to give the students agency and voice and freedom and opportunities to do what matters to them this is not really the case in a traditional school however this idea of student government still exists within a in, uh, within a traditional school, especially as kids get a little bit older. But so maybe if you go to a middle school or the upper end of primary, you would see a student government where a particular group of children might go and meet. They might be chosen uh, from by the teacher or through some kind of a democratic process where the students would then go and they would discuss some of the things that were pertinent to the school. Often, if there were a student government inside a traditional school, it would be very much limited to the idea of planning things that already had set rules. And those rules would probably already have been set by teachers and the the administration of the school. And often this might just be the students overseeing overseeing an event. So they may have some say into the theme of that event. They may have some say into a little bit of, of what that event looks like. But the majority of the of the ideas already taken by the administration. We are having a dance for Halloween. 
that's already been decided by the teachers at the staff meeting. Hey, student government, what's the name of the dance? What drinks are we going to serve? Who's going to get those? Who wants to go around with the playlist to find out what songs we want? These sort of like, it's almost like a task delegation level. Yeah, because... You know, the notion of agency is an anathema in the traditional school. Students are not there to be given agency and freedom. And there's there's these little windows. And this is something that just will become a huge topic as we go further into the mainstream and then the progressive schools. But in the traditional school... There, there is still going to be those those few windows. What are the babies or what are the positives of a traditional school having a student government? So it is practice for when you get some actual power. So you as a student, you're kind of at the lowest level of the power pyramid. But this is giving you a taste of what it's like to take on some of that responsibility. It's as you move up the pyramid. It's practice for some of those citizenship skills of being able to be a group member to have something asked of you and to uphold your duty and knowing and making and following the rules even like this is giving you a close kind of like drip line of some of the authority that is to come. You still very much have your role and your place. And I like what you said, you know, within this, yes, you have your agency to do your duty, but it's not actually freedom. The actual level of choice you have is a very closed level of choice. And the big decisions about how a dance or some kind of new playground equipment or whatnot, whatever's coming, that's still largely being decided at the level of teachers, um, but being passed down. So the positive side of this, though, is just kind of the modeling. If we go back to a, a model apprentice model, which we say is one of the strengths of the traditional school, ideally, the teacher or teachers in charge of the student government are modeling really good delegation skills they're modeling you know the upholding of their duty they're modeling that self-discipline for the kids and they're they're getting a really positive role model and experience out of this it's hard for me to say too many of the positives though even though i was i know i was sneaking into a bit of the bathwaters o'leary this kind of student government what are some of the drawbacks of it the 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 notion of student choice strikes at the very heart of all of the value systems it's incredibly important and so this is one of those things we've had a few uh, we had a few episodes where we said hey everyone agrees with this this is this is something that everybody thinks is good classroom jobs was one a few weeks ago this is one that nobody agrees on and what would happen is that this the school essentially is disallowing any meaningful discussions and actions by this student government so if the government exists, if the student government exists, they don't have any real say or any real power to get anything done. They might have a say over what form the fundraising takes, or they may have a, a say over, you know, what colors the posters are in the dance, but the actual chance of them having anything meaningful to say, no. And so this would really annoy, especially that inclusion value, because it it would be disheartening. It was essentially saying, students, we are in charge. And here is you get to decide which of these which of these flavors of ice cream you like, while we go and decide where the money's spent and how many hours you spend in school and what you do. So giving students the choice, but only in matters that have almost no relevance to the running of the school. I mean, that's got to be a very big bathwater if you're anything outside of the traditional value. Now, if you're in the traditional value, you would argue that they will get that they will get that power little by little as they grow up and as they earn it in authority. Absolutely get it. But in the year 2020, as we said, this VUCA kind of world where the world is changing and you do need to be adaptive 
there's going to be so many times where you will need to be able to make meaningful decisions. And so if you are going to prep somebody for that, and if, the, if that is the baby from this, then you need to start eking out places where they can start to have a slightly more say in something that matters. Not going to say too much on that now because I know when this comes back in the mainstream and then the progressive schools, we're going to have a lot to say. But essentially, the big bathwater here is it doesn't matter what the student government does because they have no power. Anything to add to that, Rob? No, that sounds perfectly apocalyptic as a way to wrap up. And we hope when you're hearing this in 3,000 years from now and you've dug, you've dug up the uh, internet pod bunker, uh, yes, we are your new gods. We mapped all this out a thousand, thousand years, years ago as a prophecy about what education will end up looking like. Yes, thank you, cockroach people. So, Brennan, where do we go next? What's the next episode here? I believe when we come back in a couple of weeks, we'll be talking about the relationship between parents and teachers, and then that's going to lead us into a discussion more about how the community and school interacts in a traditional society. And then a couple more episodes, we're actually finally... And I say finally in a, in, a, in a good way, finally as in we have analyzed everything we wanted to analyze about the traditional school. But finally, we will be done with the traditional school and able to look onwards and upwards towards the mainstream school, progressive school, and even off there in the distance, the integration school. How does that make you feel, Rob, in these dark days? Uh, brings me hope. It's a silver lining in these clouds yeah. above the Belgian skies All today. Right. Well, I hope you stay safe and everyone you love stay safe. Yeah. Genuine, heartfelt wishes for everybody yeah, who's course. listening to of this. Course. Hope everyone's yes. all right. All our love to the world. Let's do what we can. I'll send you that clip on the three different responses to stress. See which one you can identify oh, yourself yeah. as, Brennan. Thanks, Brennan. Thanks, Rob. We hope this episode has been interesting. If you want to connect, we're on Twitter. We're kind of building a community there. Feel free to pass this episode on to others who give a damn about what's going on in education. From Brendan and myself, attention is a valuable thing these days. Thanks for having some of yours on what we're saying.